Hello. Hi, everyone. Hello, everybody. Welcome back. Hope you had a blast this Halloween. So sad it's behind us, but never fear because here we bring the creeps all year long. (laughs) 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 Was that that was too cheesy? I mean, it fits uh, all the other times that you've been. Oh, perfect. (laughs) Good. Okay. So. The other night I thought of you because I was falling asleep and I heard a noise and I was scared. (laughs) I was like, shit herself. (laughs) Yes. I, well, I thought it was like karma because all the times I'm like, oh my God, you're such a chicken. And I was scared for like, I was struggling to fall asleep. That's how scared I was. (laughs) Dude. Oh my God. You, that's what you get for being like, whenever I told you that, um, the what the fuck is that the hell house llc oh when yes. i texted you and i was like this is terrifying you're like it's scary but i, I think you're getting a little <laughs> no it was scary Dude, i remember being it scared was, it i literally it took me a while to like get used to sleeping again because i still wake up in the middle of the night but i refuse to look out into the room now because i'm like if there's something standing there sitting there i'm gonna lose my shit Oh my god, seriously though. Yeah, that one was a really good one. That was a really good recommendation. Thank you. It's a lot of fun. I really like that movie. Um, I tell everybody about it because it just seems so like low budget that nobody really notices it much, but it genuinely creeped me out. Yeah, dude. I was not expecting it to be that way. It was mm-hmm. slightly it was a little bit corny at the end, but still it I it was scary. Oh dear. Well, I'm glad that you liked it. Well, the end, and you know what I meant by the end, right? Like it was kind of like over the top at the end, but yeah. still, I still yeah, liked but it. it was okay. I mean, it wasn't. I it still, I was still scared. So, well, well, I was like genuinely scared. I thought somebody was in the house, and then the other night it happened oh. again. And I don't know if it just has to do because this is like a new house, and like, what if someone still has a key or like. I don't know. I just was your brain thinking. <laughs> I was thinking all kinds of shit. And so I was going to do a story about squatters, but I just didn't think they were creepy enough. But then I started thinking about home invasions and I thought about the movie The Strangers. Oh, girl. And how that movie is so terrifying. So then it brought me back around to one of these mysteries I'd heard of a long time ago. And that's what I'm going to be covering today because um, many of us have seen The Strangers and had our rational fear of home invasions validated. And cabins are creepy in general, but unsolved murders taking place in them makes it even worse. Oh, God. Mm -hmm. So here we go. Warning, the gruesome details are very graphic and disturbing. I will be covering the Ketty Cabin Murders of 1981. Lord. Mm. Are these Such still, a hard they're still unsolved? Okay, you're okay. I put unsolved in quotes because as you will come to find out, they pretty much know who did it, but it's a whole it's a whole thing. So it they still call it unsolved, but pretty much everybody knows who did it. So we will see what oh. I mean by that soon. I used Scary Mysteries, a channel on YouTube, posted in July of this year. Um, It's pretty good. You guys should go watch it. Buckle your seatbelts because, as always, this unsolved mystery will scare you and piss you off by the end. Wonderful. 
36-year-old Glenna Sue Sharp had just left her military husband, James, and they took to a cabin for peace and quiet, she and her family. They achieved this for about a year and a half when they arrived in 1979. John was 15, Sheila 14, Tina 12, Rick 10, and Greg was 5. So she has a family of 6 total. She has 5 kids. Keddy is a resort town in the far northern edge of California's Sierra Nevada mountain range. 60 residents lived in this area at this time. Cabin 28 was theirs, and it was a two-story home with two bedrooms. Sue and her two daughters shared one bedroom, and the other bedroom held her two younger sons. John, the eldest, stayed in the basement room that could only be accessed from outside. Sue was a single mother with five kids and no help from her ex, and she relied on her $250 income from the Navy, food stamps, and her part-time job from the Quincy Elk Lodge, and a small stipend as an enrollee at a California training program. She was in a typing class at Feather River College. Cabins 26 and 27, Sue's neighbors, held families too, and they all became kind of close, and their kids hung out and that kind of thing. It was a tight little community, and kids went to school in Quincy, a town nearby. Martin and Marilyn Smart were in her typing class, and they lived in cabin 26 with their sons, Justin and Casey. So far, this sounds peaceful, and it's just what they wanted to achieve. On April 11th, 1981, John, the eldest son, was hanging out with his friend Dana Wingate. Dana was a junior at Quincy High, two years older than John, and they hung out at Gainzer Park in Quincy at 1.30 p.m. that day. Her 15-year-old daughter went to get them and bring them back to Ketty. John and Dana had plans to go to a party later that night, so at 3.30 p.m., John and Dana hitchhiked back to Quincy. Later that night, they were partying in Oakland camp. Sisters Sheila and Tina were at Cabin 27 watching TV. Tina went home around 9 p.m., and Sheila had a sleepover at Cabin 27, so she stayed. Sue, Tina, and Rick and Greg were home. Justin Smart from Cabin 26, remember Marilyn and Marty's son, was staying with them for a sleepover with the two younger boys. Um, And 12-year-old, wait, hold on. Justin Smart from Cabin 26. Yeah, he's a 12-year-old, but he was hanging out with the two younger boys who are 10 and 5. So Justin Smart is over at there. I know it's like really confusing, but like Tina, Rick, Greg, Justin Smart and Sue, the mother, are all in cabin 26. Okay. Or, I'm sorry, cabin 28. Oh, my God. I'm over here, like, <laughs> getting confused. Let me say that again. Sue, Tina, and Rick and Greg are all home, and Justin Smart is staying with them in cabin 28, but he usually lives in cabin 26 with Marilyn and Marty. And he's 12, year old, 12 years old, but he's friends with the two younger boys. Um, so he's staying there for the night, and remember, Sheila is staying somewhere else, and John and Dana are out at a party. So Dana and John caught a ride back home between 9.30 and 10 p.m., and the Sharps in Cabin 28 are joined by Dana and Justin Smart overnight. So Dana is also going to be staying over, and that's not Sue's kid, but he's just going to stay over. So it wasn't until around 1.30 a.m. that something was wrong. A couple living nearby were awoken by what sounded like muffled screaming, but they ignored it and went back to sleep when they couldn't figure out what it was. Great. Sheila Sharp woke up and headed home Sunday, the morning of April 12th. She found 
bloody bodies as she opened the door and ran back to the Seabolts, which is cabin 27, crying uncontrollably. They sent their teen son to check on the family while they went and called for help. Jamie, the Seabolts' son, discovered the three young boys, Rick, Greg, and Justin, still asleep and safe in the house. Oh, my God. So the, the little boys were fine. They were in a different room, um, still sleeping. And he didn't want them to walk through the house and see what happened. So he helped them out through the bedroom window. Um, they reported the crime to the co-owner of the resort, Jan Ablin, who then called the Plumas County Sheriff's Department. Hank Clement, deputy sheriff, responded immediately and arrived at 8.05 a.m. He opened the door and John Sharp was lying face up with bloodied hands wrapped with medical tape, his ankles bound with an electrical cord. His throat had been slashed. Next to him was Dana, lying on his stomach with his head partially on a sofa pillow. His head was damaged and his neck showed signs of strangulation. His ankles were firmly tied with an electrical cord, the same cord that bound John's ankles. They were bound together by the same cord. Pools of blood on the floor and sofa pillow showed signs of a staged crime scene. Bodies had been dragged and moved around after a violent assault. This they could tell by the amount and the locations of the blood. Sue was lying on her side close to the sofa. She was naked from the waist down and she had been moved and partially covered with a yellow blanket that was extremely bloody. She was gagged with a blue bandana and her own underwear with medical tape her throat was slashed, by, but her chest was stabbed, and on the side of her head, she had an imprint of the butt of a Daisy 880 BB gun. All three also had severe skull injuries by something that looked like a hammer. They also had knife wounds, and they appeared to have died from the blunt force trauma and stabbings. More officers arrived on the scene to investigate. Multiple weapons covered in blood were found near the bodies. On a small wooden table lay a bloody hammer and butcher knife, and a badly bent steak knife lay on the floor. An unidentified fingerprint was found on a handrail on the stairs leading to the back door. Blood was found outside the living room floor and the ceiling, the walls, and the furniture. A bedsheet in the girls' bedroom had blood. The lights had been turned off, blinds shut, and the phone left off the hook. Sheila noted a shoebox that held tools was missing. The jacket and shoes of Tina were missing, but worst of all, and what had gone unnoticed for hours as the investigation took place, was the fact that Tina was missing. They wondered if she'd escaped or if she was kidnapped. This prompted a call to the FBI, and soon they arrived on the scene as well. Sadly, three years after the murders, it was confirmed that she had also been murdered that night. Maybe not that night, but around the time that her mom and brother and Dana were murdered. On April 22nd, 1984, a bottle collector found a cranium portion of a skull and a part of a jaw in a camp in Feather Falls, 30 miles from Ketty. They were Tina Sharp's remains. With the remains, they found a child's blanket, a blue nylon jacket, a pair of jeans with a missing back pocket, and an empty surgical tape dispenser. How old was she? She was, I want to say 12. <clears throat> Let me scroll back just to double check. Yes, she's she's 12 at this time. Mm -hmm. So they took her with them and who knows what happened um, after that. Horrible. So 
Everybody was afraid of everybody after these murders. The community was changed forever after this happened. Um, at first, it seemed so random, which made it even more terrifying because that means this could have happened to anyone. But knowing what is known now, this wasn't random. The Plumas County Sheriff's Office under Doug Thomas led the investigation, and many speculate he allowed this case to go cold. He didn't want this case solved, and neither did the Department of Justice, who also got involved with this case, because it was just so, it was such a big case at the time that the Department of Justice, I believe Sacramento's Department of Justice and the FBI, like so many people like knew about it. So it's like, why the fuck isn't it solved? You know what I mean? Yeah. So that being said, let's jump into the evidence. No forced entry and all the prep, like I mentioned before, the shut blinds, the no lights, the phone off the hook. The Seabolt family hadn't heard anything and they were in the cabin next door, so they should have, first of all. But the couple that was nearby that did say that they heard something didn't know what it was and they just went back to sleep, so that's weird. Um, A few residents remembered seeing a flat-tired Datsun, some kind of like truck, and an unknown green van on the property around 9 p.m. And I guess this was just never looked into. But it was the interview with Justin Shart or Justin Shart. Sorry. <laughs> I combined smart and sharp. I'm so sorry, Justin. Okay, anyway. <laughs> perfect. Oh God. Um, but it was the interview with Justin Smart that gave them a lead. Under hypnosis, Justin said he witnessed the crime. He said he was watching TV with the boys in their bedroom when he heard something in the living room. So he opened the door and saw Sue struggling with two men. He watched as the older boys walked in on the struggle. This is Dana and John returning from the party, and they got into a violent fight with these men. Then when Tina went into the living room, she was carried outside through the back door by one of the men. He said they were between their late 20s and early 30s wearing gold-framed sunglasses. One was between 5'11 and 6'2 with dark blonde hair and the other between 5'6 and 5'10 with greasy black hair. Some sources don't mention the hypnosis part, and I'm not sure if I'm more inclined to believe Justin's statement um, with him being under hypnosis or not. Like, what do you think? Um, I used to believe hypnosis but now i'm not entirely so sure right i kind of feel like i'm more likely to believe someone under hypnosis especially a kid because you know like if they can't remember or something i feel like if hypnosis does work they're more likely to like remember it but i don't know i think it's only certain circumstances Exactly. I don't, I've, I'm not familiar enough. And that's like a whole discussion on its own, like the hypnosis thing. Cause right. it is really weird when it seems like it is working. Yeah. I agree. Um, like, uh, I guess in Vegas, they do, they like have people volunteer and do get hypnotized on stage. And like, they have grown men doing all kinds of stuff on that stage. So who yeah. knows? You're right. I mean, <laughs> acting like fools. <laughs> Well, and that's how they do the past life regression. They put you under hypnosis. Whoa. So that's crazy. I don't know how I feel about that either, but that's a whole nother fucking thing. Same. Okay, good. We're on the same page. Um, So uh, Sheriff Thomas had called the Sacramento Department of Justice, which then sent in two special agents from their organized crime unit, but they weren't from like a, a homicide unit. So that's weird. 
uh, composite sketches were drawn up um, from what Justin had given them by forensic artist Harlan Embry, and they were publicized by the police and residents came forward saying they knew them, but no valid suspect was identified. And I'll post the drawing, uh, but describing them, basically one reportedly had a mustache and long hair and the other was clean shaven with short hair, but both were wearing sunglasses and one of them had a hammer in their hand, according to Justin. So it's documented that one of them just already had it. And I'm not sure if the knives were from the cabin or they didn't like specify what the other weapons were from, if they were Sue's or if the people brought them, who knows? Mm -hmm. So I thought that was weird. And this is where it gets interesting. Remember Martin Smart? Well, people said one of the guys in the drawings looked like him. And here's some background on Marty. He was a Vietnam vet with PTSD and deep-seated anger issues. He is also Justin's father, which would explain why the little boy's room where he was was left untouched and the boys unharmed. Oh, my. And maybe it ex it also explains why Justin would stay in that room and keep the others in there as well, and he might be used to Marty's outbursts. <gasps> in 1980, the Smarts moved to Keddy, and Marty worked as a hotel cook. Before the murders took place, he lost his job because he wasn't a good chef, and he and his wife had marital problems, and he was manufacturing hashish to support his family. Okay. And apparently he hated John because John was a, a smart ass and a bit of a troublemaker. So I guess he had mentioned it to people or something because it was documented. And that's weird. So whatever. Um, on April 13th, Marty had brought was brought in for his first and only interview. He said he heard they were struck with a hammer and mentioned he couldn't find his. It had gone missing a few weeks ago. Sheriff Doug Thomas might have been friends with him for sure because this seems like information you would hold someone for. Like, okay, how did you hear about them being struck with a hammer and where is it? Mm -hmm. um, and he was asked where he was the night of the murders and he said he, Marilyn, his wife, and his friend John Bow were at a bar. Real quick, this guy Bow or John Bodeeb or something, it's like B-O-U-D-E-B-E, -E -E, had been staying with them for a few weeks and it further confirmed that he was selling drugs because this guy, uh, John Bow, was known for that. And he had been in and out of prison for drug-related offenses and burglaries. He had ties to an organized crime group in Chicago and in the area. And they stayed until... Okay, so he and his buddy, John, and his wife stayed until the bar closed at around 1.30 a.m. and headed home for bed. But Marilyn, his wife, gives a different account of what happened. And she said that they left at 11 p.m. and then she fell asleep. And the two men went back to the bar dressed in three-piece suits and sunglasses. Maybe so the patrons wouldn't recognize them when they returned. Who knows? The fuck? Um, so she woke up around 2 a.m. and saw them burning something in their wood stove. And he later said it was just another log. Mm-hmm. So between 11 and 2 a.m., she doesn't really know his whereabouts, but they were, like, disguised and acting weird. <laughs> yeah, what the fuck? That should be a thing on its own. Like, that's weird. I know, for real. Like, okay, you guys are going to play dress up or something? Like, what? Okay. So days later, they were officially separated, and she told authorities she suspected them of being responsible for the murders. Mm-hmm. 
She told them about the strange behavior the night before, and apparently John Bow was rejected by Sue at one point, and she mentioned Marty's hatred towards John Sharp, which is Sue's son. She mentioned how Marty got when he drank, and unfortunately the investigation was botched and evidence was ignored and not properly checked or documented. Sheriff Thomas had resigned from the investigation three months in and took a job at the Sacramento DOJ. His handling of the case, in retrospect, would be considered disastrous at best and corrupt at worst. I was told the suspects were told to get out of town, so to me, that means it was a cover-up, Sheila Sharp told CBS Sacramento in 2016. Leads weren't followed up on, and the California Department of Justice dropped the ball as well. In a documentary on the murders, Sheriff Doug Thomas said he personally interviewed Marty and he had passed the polygraph test. So I guess we're good. The fuck? <laughs> um, and the which who's to say that even happened, that he even took that or whatever. But mm-hmm. the guy said so whatever. And the DOJ had an interest in protecting John Bow. Um, John Bow passed away in 1988 in Illinois and Marty died of cancer in June of 2000 in Portland, Oregon. And Cabin 28 was demolished in 2004. What the fuck? What? (sighs) This isn't over yet, though. Two men who knew the family have chosen to pursue the case further. 32 years after the murder, they began to take another look. And as of this year, it's been 40 years now. Um, Right. But Greg Hagwood was only 16 when his friends John and Dana were killed, and he didn't forget about them when he became the sheriff of Plumas County. In 2013, he relaunched the investigation and he asked retired Plumas County Sheriff Deputy and Special Investigator Mike Ganberg to take over the investigation. Mike had been John and Dana's martial arts coach. I know, it's very sad. So together they worked on the case and Mike found a tape at the bottom of the box having to do with the identification of Tina's remains. So in the case file box, they found a cassette tape and when they played it, it was shocking because apparently the Butte County Sheriff's Department had received an anonymous call asking, hey, uh, I was wondering if they thought of the murder up in Keddy up in Plumas County a couple years ago where a 12-year-old girl was never found. And so someone was inquiring this info upon the finding of the remains that were probably announced on the news. Uh, weird, almost as if the killer was trying to see if Tina was found or possibly helping to identify Tina. What the fuck? But they just like put the tape at the bottom of the case file and acted like they never got the call. So mm-hmm. weird. Then in 2016, Gamberg found a hammer in a dried up pond in Keddy, and it's believed to be one of the murder weapons. <gasps> Like, okay, ugh, after all this time. And then um, he believes the tape had been purposely ignored. Another piece of evidence believed to have been hidden away on purpose was a letter from Marty to Marilyn. And Marilyn had handed this over, like, willingly, whenever she was pretty much trying to tell them she thinks Marty did it. And listen to this. Um, It was so hard to find this, so it's kind of blurry, but I'll just kind of read it. It was hard to find the... um, the letter all in one piece and not blurry as hell. So it says for three years, I've loved, wait, I've heard about your kids. Don't get me wrong. I love them too. Now I'll ask, what about mine? Don't you think I love them? Honey, I gave up something, something of the most precious things in my life. 
And then at the end, it pretty much says, I've given it to you. I've paid the price of your love. And now that I've bought, bought it with four people's lives, you tell me we're through. Great. What else do you want? Yes, dude. Like, what the fuck? And then they come to find out that she had left him on the day that the bodies were discovered. Oh, shit. And in 2016, Gamberg, Gamberg met with a counselor at the Reno Veterans Administration. The anonymous counselor told him that in May of 1981, Martin Smart had confessed to killing Sue and Tina Sharp. I killed the woman and her daughter, but I didn't have anything to do with the boys, he purportedly told the counselor. When the DOJ was alerted to this confession in 1981, they dismissed it as hearsay. What? I know. What the hell? It's not hearsay when it's a confession. The yeah, fuck? like, what the fucking shit? <laughs> I'm telling you. So it goes all the way. It goes all the way to the top with this. But here's where the rumors come in. I mean, what happens in such a small town, right? Peace always gets interrupted by drama. And sometimes, honey, the drama comes to a boil. Mm. It was believed that Marty and Sue were sleeping together. Of course. And that's where his letter would make sense. And it's also rumored that Sue was advising Marilyn to leave because Marilyn confided in Sue saying that Marty was abusive. And I guess Sue had just left her husband who was abusive so they could kind of relate. But at the same time, she's sleeping with him. So I don't know. Like, what the fuck? That doesn't make any good answer. Right. So um, could both be true or only one rumor be true or neither? Who knows? But... Um, after this, basically, Marty found out what Sue was trying that Sue was trying to get Marilyn to leave, so he wanted to have his cake and eat it too, and got his buddy Bo to help cross Sue out of the picture. Oh shit! Then, while I was looking for the full size, um, clear photo of the letters, I found a crazy website that somebody made. And this is where it gets super intense. And it's really juicy. Obviously, I can't verify like any of this, if it's true or not. But it is something to behold. So I'll be reading from that. Who knows if it's one of the killers that decided to like come clean. But here we go. The following is the most complete and detailed account of what happened leading up to and during the Ketty murders. This is not told in ifs or maybes as I've studied this case, etc., um, for 15 years now, and I have access and have had access since mid 2020 to all case files, interviews, recordings, etc., still known to exist. I have spent thousands of hours poring over every detail and assisted, assisted the PCSOS's SA, Mike Gamberg, during this tenure as lead investigator from 2014 until budgetary restraints forced the case to be mothballed again. Um, in 2018. During that time, we worked together to prove many points, including several of my own theories and conclusions. A few of these are Marty Smart and Sue Sharp were having an affair. Marilyn Smart was the key conspirator and instigator of the three main killers, which is Marilyn, Marty, and Bo. So they all three did the killings. That's what I was thinking. Which which is crazy because then she goes and turns around and is like, I'm going to throw them two under the bus before. Oh, fuck yeah. Oh, God. Okay. Mm-hmm. Kathy Beckley is, I guess, another neighbor, lied about giving the boys a ride home. She, in fact, went back on her promise to do so, but eventually um, had somebody else, like a friend, take them to Keddie. So she had, I guess, 
at first said that she took the boys back to Keddie, but then it was a lie. So that's what he's saying or they are saying, yeah, I don't know. Just like weird little details. Um, and the PCC PCSO knew this in 1981, then buried it and lied, lied about it for 30 years. Um, upon my sending Gamberg paperwork on the missing recording of the phone call, IDing the skull as possibly Tina's, he located the tape within a week. So this person knows what they're talking about. John Bow had a lengthy criminal career within and without the Chicago outfit, which is a mafia group. Bow was protected by several factions of law enforcement. And Bo's military records were falsified. Signs indicate his death may also have been a fabrication. What? <sighs> okay, so here we go. So the Ketty murders are unofficially solved. Since July 2020, I've been poring over the case files I haven't seen yet, having been given full access by former lead investigator Mike Gambert. I've also been in contact with the step-niece of the original sheriff, Doug Thomas, who has provided me his original case files and case notes dating back to 1981. The main line of lies surrounding the Ketty case, though those most often regurgitated online and in podcasts, is that Marty Smart and Bo murdered Sue Sharp because Sue was counseling Marty's wife to leave Marty, and that Tina was taken alive from Cabin 28 and killed later. And the worst part is that Tina was the target for white slavery. Who knows? I haven't read that, but that's what, what he says. That, that That's a lie. He's saying that it's a lie, that they weren't going to keep her as like a human slave or whatever. All of these Why are clearly lies. I don't know. Okay. Exactly. I think they, I don't know. They Maybe they just like assaulted her and then killed her. I don't know. All of these are clearly lies, all of which were knowingly spread by several of the originally original investigators within PCSO and CADOJ. Here's the short and sweet version that is absolutely true. Sue was not counseling Marilyn. She was, however, having an affair with Marty. Marilyn found out around mid-February to March of 1981, and as a result, Marty was kicked out of their house and moved to Reno and lived with his old friend, John Bow. They did not meet at the VA. They were both carnival workers and scammers who'd known each other for years. Mm. Bo was in Reno because he'd been kicked out of Vegas by remnants of Sheriff Lamb's crew. Marilyn's MO was to hook up with a guy, cheat on him while bleeding him dry, then latch onto her new victim while leaving the husk of the last guy drifting in the wind. The last mm. thing Marilyn would allow is for her man to stray on her and let some other slag sleep with him. So this is like super personal. Um, Marilyn wanted Sue dead. So they're saying now that Marilyn is the culprit behind this whole thing. Damn. Ooh, that's a ride. So she was friends with this woman named Nina Meeks, who was supposed to be her best friend. And Nina's son, Richard, was one of the kids screwing Sue's daughter, Sheila. Screwing what the fuck? Yeah, the language. I'm actually cl- kind of cleaning it up because, first of all, he's calling Mar- or this person's calling Marilyn Loon. And he called her a slag. Yes, yes. Okay, so I'm kind of cleaning it up, but anyway, so Richard is having sex with Sue's daughter, Sheila, and Sheila's the oldest daughter, remember? Mm-hmm. Pregnant at 13, the Meeks thought the what? baby was Richard's and wanted the baby. Yeah, they said she got pregnant. So, like I said, I have no I have no idea. Um, so, um, they thought it was Richard's and wanted the baby. Instead, Sue put the baby up for adoption. Richard and Nina Meeks wanted Sue dead. So all of these people are like in she agreement. Put the baby up for adoption, right? 
Um, they wanted the baby. They were like, that's our grandchild. So it's dramatic. So Nina's other son, Wade, was 19 and was screwing 35-year-old Marilyn. Um, and little did Wade know, but his best friend, Blaine Grubert, was also betting Marilyn, too. Damn, Marilyn. I know. Wade wanted Marty out of the picture and Marilyn wanted Marty out of the picture. So it's like a whole circle of like How? a bunch of people. Right. How are right. you going to be fucking all these dudes? Like, I mean, and be fine, off. but then getting yeah. pissed whenever right. someone else decides they're going to fuck them too. Like, I don't. I don't right. Understand. And then here's where it's a little bit hard for me to understand, but Sheila is, is apparently said to have hated her mother too. And she hated Tina and she hated John. And these are her family. So I don't understand, but she hates her family period. Sue was a horrid mom and was rarely home and left all the housework to the kids who were always uh, running around town, shoeless and hungry, asking for food. Uh, and I hate this because, you know, they're passed away and I don't want to talk ill of Sue after the horrific things happened mm -hmm. to her. But this is all hearsay based on this website, which is keddy28.com. So then they say back when they were living in a tiny trailer at Claremont Trailer Park, she Sheila and Tina would barricade themselves inside, locking the others out. Too small for five kids. Most of them slept in on a dirt floor shed Sue had built beside the trailer. Sue went through several boyfriends, and it goes on to talk about that. And then Sheila gave birth to her baby girl in Oregon in early February of 1981, and Sue drove up to both get Sheila and put the baby up for adoption. So this is like right before, I guess, they settled into the Keddy cabin. Mm -hmm. um, this obviously angered Sheila and the Meeks family, enough for them to arrange to have Sue murdered. Sheila told the Meeks the baby was Richard's, but Dana also clearly feared the baby was his. <gasps> what the fuck? Yeah, it's a huge thing. Um, Sheila wanted out of her family. I believe she thought the baby was her out and that she'd be taken in by the Meeks. Instead, Sue put the baby up for adoption and Sheila wanted her whole family dead. Things came to a head by March around the time Marilyn discovered the affair and Marilyn and the Meeks were great friends and Nina Meeks was friendly with Sue but really wanted her dead over the baby. I believe Marilyn and Nina got together and over commiserating about their multiple issues with Sue, they agreed on killing her. It would have been easy to get Sheila on board as she wanted mommy dead too. And it is kind of convenient that Sheila stayed at that um, other cabin, right? Because I mean, it doesn't yeah. it doesn't say who her friends were. I know she had a friend living there, but it doesn't really focus on that. Like, oh, she was best friends with that girl who lived there, and I don't know. Mm -hmm. Anyways, so Marty was fired from his cook job at the lodge for poor performance and dealing drugs, and his former boss was also evicting him from House Twenty Six. Uh, Marilyn was able to get Marty involved in the murders by claiming she'd take him back if they eliminated Sue. Bo got involved because he didn't mind killing people. That was his business. And Marty and Marilyn claimed they knew Justin was sleeping at Cabin 28 that night, which makes it hard to explain why they would kill four people in a house where they knew their son was sleeping. As it turns out, Justin had slept over both Friday and Saturday at Cabin 28, yet Marty and Marilyn had no idea where he was and they didn't care. In 2016, six and a half hour long interview with FBI agents, Marilyn blurted out that they had no idea Justin was sleeping over that night. Somehow, Sheila finagled her way into sleeping over next door at the Seabolts that night. 
and uh, Tina typically stayed there too. Sheila, however, had never slept at cabin 27 before. Very odd that the first night she sleeps there is also the same night that she agreed to have her family slaughtered. Tina had spent most of the day at the Seabolts and Sheila went over around 5 p.m. They both had dinner at cabin 27 while Justin, Rick, Greg, and Sue had frozen burritos for dinner. Around 8.30 p.m., Sheila went back home, gathered some bedding for her sleepover, and then left for good. Upon exiting cabin 28, though, she managed to flip off the light switch just inside the front door without anyone noticing. Sue was lying on the couch facing the TV and the front door was on the opposite wall to her, perfectly in her line of vision. Had Sue glanced up to bid goodnight to her daughter, she may have noticed Sheila flipped the light switch. Instead, she continued staring at the cheap black and white TV engrossed in the latest episode of Love Boat while her daughter set her up to be murdered. The boys, Rick, Justin... Uh, who just turned 12 a few days prior, were also watching on the floor. This is around the time Greg, who's five, went to bed. The light switch not only controlled the front porch light, but it also was hardwired to a street lamp at the end of the um, yard arm attached to the tall fir tree at the front gate of 28. This is very specific. Yeah, um, this is making me like believe this person, but uh, the yard arm hung out over the center of Keddie's Main Street, illuminating the way for the workers to get from the railroad station to the lodge. At one time, the contract between the railroad and the owner of Keddie stipulated that the light had to remain on and the lodge's coffee shop must remain open 24-7 for the workers. By turning off the light, Sheila ensured the premises and surrounded environment was uh, of 28 were darkened so that the killers could enter with far less likelihood of being seen jeez that is super like elaborate it keeps going so yeah it even specifies like how dana and uh, john got home what the guys were wearing a three-piece polyester disco suit that's so weird. yeah so I'm going to switch back over, but I just kind of wanted to give you guys a gist of how specific this person is because apparently they have access to more information than than we've, you know, than we do. So that's pretty crazy. And the rumors are just insane with all of the Sheila being involved and everything. So mm-hmm. that's that. Plus the idea that good old Sheriff Doug Thomas covered it up because Marty and Bo's ties to drug smuggling fell under a march much larger group that involved the federal government. I mean, Marty was for sure a known drug dealer and Bo was connected to Chicago crime syndicates with financial interests in drug distribution. So that makes sense, I guess. And this might explain why the Sacramento DOJ sent two allegedly corrupt organized crime special agents instead of agents from the homicide department. It also Mm. provides an explanation as to why the two lead suspects were seemingly given a free pass and told to leave town by Sheriff Thomas. Mm Mm-hmm. Furthermore, it suggests an answer as to why this case was handled so sloppily remains unsolved and is seemingly not a priority to the Sacramento Department of Justice. Although both Martin Smart and Bo are now deceased, new DNA evidence has pointed investigators to other suspects who may have had a hand in these murders and who are still alive. It's my belief that there are more than just two people who were involved in the totality of this crime. The disposal of the evidence and the abduction of the little girl, Hagwood said, we're convinced that there are a handful of people that fit those roles and who are still alive. Um... That's intense. The comments added to my suspicions of the murder weapons. Why get rid of some of the murder weapons and not all and leave two or three in the cabin? Maybe they were planted and 
the disposed ones had DNA on them from the actual killers. There wasn't forensic DNA testing at the time, but maybe they knew eventually there would be. I have no idea. Okay, but did you? Right. Right. Remember they had like a hammer and a knife on the wooden table inside the cabin, but then there's a hammer thrown in the pond. Like, okay, how many hammers are you going to need? I feel like it was more than one person. You know what I mean? And right. And so when I read those, that little website from that person that has access to all those files, I was like, maybe there are Nina Meeks and Marilyn and all these people involved. Yeah. Then there's the Plumas News website, and I'm going to read straight from the website, so sorry if this gets repetitive, but it's crazy. So a case file update is a new column featuring previous cases involving the county and its people, yada yada. DNA taken from a strip of white medical tape consistent with that used to bind the victim's hands and ankles and to cover the mouth of one victim has revealed much as the Plumas County Sheriff's office moves forward in its efforts to solve the quadruple murder case. A segment of tape containing identifiable DNA was found on the floor near the body of Sue Sharp in 1981. Plumas County Sheriff's Special Investigator Mike Gamberg said recently, the DNA matches that of a known living suspect, according to Gamberg. He's had the DNA for several years, but it wasn't until recently that he obtained the needed samples and found the match. Until now, lack of fingerprints and identifiable DNA left at the scene by the perpetrators has stymied, I don't know, investigative efforts. (laughs) Those who were inside cabin 28, the night and or early morning hours of April 11th and 12th, 1981, were somewhat prepared, according to Gambert. It's suspected that someone brought a hammer, the one recovered in a nearby pond in 2016, as well as using a hammer and knives found in the home. There it is. That's what I was wondering. It's also believed medical tape was brought along, and there's some evidence that in 880, BB or pellet rifle was there, but not recovered at the scene. Both Gamberg and Plymouth County Sheriff Greg Hagwood believed that possibly as many as six people were involved in one oh capacity or another. Ooh. A whole ass community straight oh, wanted you dead. Oh my god. Yeah, that's awful. Um, in one capacity or another in the murders or the cover-up. So more people could possibly involved in covering it up and getting rid of stuff. Most of the suspects wore gloves, Gamberg said. Identifiable footprints were not recovered inside. Apparently, as the suspects bludgeoned and stabbed their victims to death, none of the suspects were injured or left their own blood at the scene. What the fuck? Oh, God. Every bit of evidence that can still be recovered is important to the case, according to Gamberg, as he continues to search for leads and re-interviews anyone linked to the Ketty murders. Those left dead at the scene included the mother, Sue Sharp, her son, John Sharp, and Dana Wingate. Um, It's known that Sue Sharp was home with her daughter, Tina, 12, and her two sons, Ricky and Greg, and Justin Smart. Um, They were left alive, yada, yada. So, yeah, that's the gist. But uh, what do you think? I think it was uh, Marilyn and um, what the fuck's his name? Marty, her husband? Yes. And mm. their friend, what is this, John? Bo. Yeah, John Bo. Um, I think it was them. I think. For sure them. Yeah, for sure them. Maybe like that other lady that was uh, the one, the grandma of the baby. Yeah, yeah, the Meeks. Yeah, yeah I think Nina she Meeks. 
was part of it. Maybe she wasn't like a full participant, but I think she mm. had something to do with it too. I think they all right. got together and were just like, let's. Right. And even this, and because, okay, I hate to think that Sheila would want her family killed for something so petty, but also like, it sucks if she did have a baby and all that happened without her like consent. Mm -hmm. Um, But it does make sense why the cabin she was in, they mysteriously didn't hear anything. I just, I don't know. They were right next to them. So um, and when John and Dana opened the door, they were bound to have screamed if they saw their mom being assaulted or whatever. Like, but the boys they walked also in on it, didn't wake up, right? And that makes me think that Marty saw Justin open the door and like kind of put his finger to his mouth, like shh, and like stay in there. You know what I mean? Oh, and Justin yeah. just listened. And the fact that if it was hypnosis that he admitted all that stuff on, he. He was like he was able to say it was his dad, but if he wasn't under a hypnosis, he would have known to lie. You know what I'm saying? Yes. He would have known to be like, my dad is like, that's my dad. I'm not gonna say shit. You know. Mm-hmm. Oh, and he's 12, so I don't know. Um, I would have to find because I didn't stumble upon that until I was looking for a picture of the letter that was clear enough to read the whole thing in full context. Because only the little part about I paid for your love with four lives. I could only find that little clipping Mm -hmm. anywhere I looked. And I had to like pay money to join a forum if I wanted the full version of the letter. So I was like, not about to do that. Um, (laughs) So I, um, I was looking and then that's when I found that weird website. And so I had no idea Sheila was even a thing at all. So I would need to look into that and see if Sheila would admit to having had a baby um, but if she's involved, obviously she's not, she's going to pretend like right, right. this is a drug related crime or something. Um, it's a lot to pack, a lot to, um, unpack there. For sure. <sighs> but yeah, um, intense. I don't know what's worse, like having suspects that pretty much did it or like it was just random and like people just stumbled on that cabin and wanted to kill people. I don't know. Yeah. That's scary. All of it is scary either way. Um, cause I was reading on, I was looking up like the strangers, the movie and it's inspiration or whatever. And the helter skelter murders were an inspiration and also the Ketty cabin murders. And then the director himself also was home alone one night and had somebody knock on his door and be like, is so-and-so home? And he's like, never heard of him. But apparently there were burglaries going on around his neighborhood around that time that were like knocking to see if anybody was home. So it didn't really matter who it was they said, but they were just seeing if anybody was home so that they could go in and steal. Um, Thank goodness not to like kill people like the movie, but Mm -hmm. my God. Um, Yeah. So the Keddie cabin murders were one inspiration for that film. And that's just super eerie. Hell Mm. yeah. Damn. They really wanted her dead. They, they took her okay because it doesn't say if she was sexually assaulted, but they, I guess it's a form of humiliation to like have them naked from the waist down and then put her own underwear in her mouth and stuff. Oh, like, yeah, that is fucking fucked up. In front of her son and his friend, and just and they took Tina and I don't know the details of her body. Nobody does because, like I said, they only found her skull and her jaw. Yeah, that part is weird. Like that doesn't make. Mm. That's what makes me Mm-mm. think it could be just a random group of right. And you, whenever you said the BB gun, that kind of reminded mm. me of like a group of kids, like a Ooh. group of teenagers yeah. just 
right okay because you would think okay hear me out because like like you're saying they have they have a hammer some knives and a bb gun but like wouldn't you think Bo, who's involved in like crime would have a gun yeah Unless they really didn't want, like, the – because, you know, bullets can be tracked and, like, this and that. So that's why they used a bunch of, like, handheld weapons. Mm -hmm. Um, But the BB gun was never found. I just – I don't know. Maybe whenever another pond dries up, they'll find the BB gun. Mm -hmm. But the clothing also that was found next to Tina's remains, the back pocket missing was kind of weird to me, too. Like, did it rip when they were, like – pulling on her or did they like get semen on it and they like had to cut it off and take it like i don't don't hate it weird because they found her jacket well honestly they didn't say it was hers but they just like named off the clothing that was found next to her remains Mm -hmm. but the medical tape dispenser had to have belonged to them because they used medical tape that whole for that whole scene um that is also interesting Mm-hmm. Why mm-hmm. And it was only 30 miles from the Ketty cabin and it went that long without being discovered unless they had the body somewhere else and didn't dump it until it was fully decomposed maybe because it took three years for them to find that skull and then a bottle collector just randomly happens upon it like yeah I don't know that's strange it was definitely under wraps by the community and the um, agents mm-hmm. or whoever Super creepy, super messed up. Hopefully one day it's still like happening. Like there's still updates happening as of April of this year and May. So um, we can keep our eyes peeled for that. And I'll keep y'all updated if anything crazy happens. Because it sucks because they could find the fingerprints like they mentioned about the tape. But then they have to wait for somebody's fingerprint to match. Yeah. (sighs) So. mm. That's frustrating. So until someone else is arrested for some random crime, we're not going to know, like, who else was involved in this. Or what, yeah. Um, but yeah, geez. Uh, that was the Cabin 28 Ketty murders of 1981. Interesting. I don't think I've ever heard, like, the full thing before, or at least that much information that you've given. <gasps> Thanks. So also, me neither. When I found when I stumbled upon that website, I was like, I have to read from this because it's there is so much more. There's all kinds of names, and I could go through it and Google like all of their names to see if they're real and stuff, but I didn't. So, y'all head over to that uh, Ketty Twenty Eight website and see because there's a lot more behind the case than mm-hmm. we're allowed to see. But yeah, and people are so bothered by it that. Like I said, there's forums online discussing still to this day, like, what the hell happened. And you said that was 40 years ago? Yes, um, from 1981, and it's 2021 now. It's insane. Ugh, horrible. But yeah, that's it. Well Super creepy. Thank you. And I guess the two boys, they might have had their identities changed or something because i don't know where they're at now i'm sure greg and ricky was like um like reporters wanting to fucking talk to them all the time and shit oh i know i just want to know like did they really sleep through it or did just because justin's 12 at that point so maybe they just listened to him because they were only 10 and 5 oh yeah maybe he told them just stay in here till it's over yeah 
That's scary. And they had to hear all the screaming and stuff. Ooh, oh, no. Horrible. Mm-hmm. There was blood on the ceiling. Like, they were swinging that hammer, like, bad to kill them they like really that. They really did not like that lady. For real. So if violent. that was I what mean, was happening. Right. If she was the focus. Mm-hmm. And uh, I wonder if they really would have only killed her if nobody else had walked in. No, I don't know. I feel like, I don't know. It's a fucking mystery. Oh, yeah. Well, that about does it. Don't forget to submit your stories to our Instagram direct message and our Twitter. We are still accepting those up through our podcast anniversary in February. So don't forget to spread the word. It could be fiction. It could be real. And yeah, we're going to pick a winner in February. So don't forget about that. Go ahead and give us a review on Apple Podcasts. If you haven't done that already, we would really appreciate it. And yeah, thank you guys for listening. Oh, are you going to do the Q&A or whatever for the... Oh, yeah, guys. On um, Spotify, there's a poll um, and there's a Q&A section. So we're going to start doing that. Make sure you take a look if you use Spotify or if you want to jump over and switch to Spotify. That would be a great idea so that we can interact with you per episode rather than per Instagram post, yada, yada. So that's very exciting. Mm -hmm. What should we ask? for this one uh who do you what do you think happened right okay so that's that's gonna take some explaining from y'all um we are gonna post the question and (laughs) you've got some explaining to do (laughs) uh um so yes you look like lucy's stunt double what is (laughs) oh dear if you haven't seen the birdcage guys you are missing out yeah, you definitely that one's a good one. God damn it. Oh man. Um so yeah, scroll to the bottom of our episode if you have Spotify and you will find a question every episode so that we can get a little bit of your thoughts on uh on what you thought. So yeah, what happened? What do you think happened? Who did it? I'm gonna put the question at the bottom. Please answer because I want to know what you guys think for sure. Yes. Oh, okay, so is it my turn? <laughs> sure so did we give you the creeps 